pretty things, birds and trees and flowers and, and the park by his house. But when he was little, his mother got very sick. Asher had always drawn and painted the things that he saw. And as an innocent boy, he drew and painted pretty things because that's how he saw the world. But when his mother became incredibly sick, he saw the world very, very differently. So he began to draw and paint different things. And he and his mother have a conversation about his drawings. His mother asks him, Asher, are you drawing pretty things? Are you drawing sweet, pretty things? I was not drawing pretty things. I was drawing twisted shapes, swirling forms in blacks and grays and reds. I did not respond. Asher, she asked again, are you drawing birds and flowers and pretty things? I can draw you birds and flowers, mama. She said to him, you should draw pretty things, Asher. And over the last few weeks, few days, we've all had our perception of the world changed in some way. We may look out at the sun that we've had this past week or the snow that we even had uh, the, this past week, or we might look out at the rain and uh, we don't see the beauty around us. We don't see the beauty of, of God's creation. Instead, we ask questions like, why? Why are we quarantined? Why is this coronavirus doing the damage that it is? And we can ask deeper, harder questions. We ask, why would God allow this to happen? Why is God doing this? And these are the same questions that I think Job would ask in his situation. I think his picture of the world has changed significantly. And there are elements of, of answers in our text this morning. There are elements of answers to these questions. And so that's what uh, we're going to look at. The first thing that I want us to see is God's sovereignty. This passage is dripping full of God's sovereignty. And a proper understanding of suffering has to begin with God's sovereignty. And then I think this text begins to answer the question of what suffering is. What is suffering? And then we're going to look uh, toward the end of the book of Job, and we're going to see God's answer. So first, we're going to see God's sovereignty, then we're going to see what suffering is, and then we're going to look to God's answer to suffering. So first, from the very outset of this passage, we are confronted with God's majesty and his sovereignty. So look back at our passage with me, if you will. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now here is a royal court. God is seated on the throne and those heavenly beings are coming to give an account of themselves. You can imagine a scene uh, in a castle with people all around the throne and this only happens before a king. This sort of account giving only happens before the sovereign. So all the members of the heavenly court come before the king and Satan also is among them. Now we're told in the New Testament that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of the world. It is against the prince of the power of the air. And so we think of Satan, but here, right from the beginning of our text, we see God's sovereign 
even over Satan. We see God ask Satan to give an account of what he's been doing. That is something the king gets to do because God is the king. So what's Satan's reply? He says, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Satan is pacing. He's pacing and he's biding his time. And he, I think he knows that he cannot succeed. So he's just like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So I think in seeing Satan pace, Satan knows that God is sovereign. And you can imagine that pacing that he has a deep hatred for God. His deep hatred for God's sovereignty and he has a deep hatred for the people of God. So God again brings up Job. In chapter one, God introduces Job and, and the wording here in chapter two is almost identical. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God points out that through all the immense suffering and pain that Job has endured, Job still holds fast to his integrity. And in this verse, we see uh, God's sovereignty most clear. Look at the end of verse three, if you have it in front of you. He holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to destroy him without reason. So who does God say destroyed Job's possessions in the first scene in chapter one? God does. God says that he is the one who caused all the calamity to fall on Job. So God is sovereign, and our understanding of suffering must include his sovereignty, even over the calamities that befall our lives. Abraham Kuyper said it this way. Abraham Kuyper was a, a Dutch theologian who was even prime minister of the Netherlands for a little while. But he said this. He said, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So there's no uh, thing that we can keep from God. God is so strong, sovereign, he is so strong that we can't withhold any part from him. We may try to be like Jonah and run to the ends of the earth to get away from God, but his sovereignty reaches to every aspect of our human experience. That is how sovereign God is. And so what? So what does God's sovereignty matter? Many of us may be thinking things like this. You may say, I believe that God is sovereign, but I'm, I'm suffering now. I'm struggling. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I'm worried about this virus. And not to mention all of the other things going on in our lives right now. Well, if we believe that God is sovereign, then his sovereignty includes a plan. An old pastor of mine used to say this. He said, God is in control and he has a plan. And he would actually, during a sermon, uh, whenever he said that phrase, he would make a stop and reiterate that. We would, we would repeat it back to him. God is in control and he has a plan. It's, it sticks with you. So God is in control and he has 
a plan. And if he has a plan and God is sovereign, then our suffering is not meaningless. Our suffering is in the hands of a God who has promised goodness to us. Romans 8 tells us that he works all things together for good for those who love him. And if that's the case, then God must be sovereign over even our afflictions. And we can take comfort in that. God is sovereign and Job was always in God's hand. Job knows this and Job trusts this. And so we come to this this small scene between Job and his wife. We'll come back and look at Satan. I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit. We'll come back and look at Satan in our next section. But now, if you want to look down at verse 9, Job has lost his wealth, he's lost his children, and now his very flesh has been afflicted. And his wife says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife has forgotten God's sovereignty. She's forgotten that he is in control and he has a plan. But notice a few things about Job's reply. And I think to understand why Job replies the way that he does, we have to remember that Job's wife is suffering too. She has lost all her children. She's lost her wealth and her means of safety, her means of security. And so I think Job's reply is actually really full of love. If you look at what's actually said, Job says this. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He doesn't outright call her a fool, but what he does, he leads her back to God's sovereignty. Job is focused not on his own circumstances, but on God. He says, shall we receive good from him and shall we not receive evil? Now, Job trusts God, and he leads his wife back to that same idea of trusting in a sovereign God. So from our text so far this morning, we've seen God's sovereignty. Because he is sovereign, he's able to fulfill his promise that all will work together for God's glory and for our good. But there is this curious section with Satan where we're confronted with the question of what real suffering is. Job and his wife have been through so much. I, I can't fathom this in, in any sense. I don't have children. I can't begin to imagine what losing children would feel like, let alone losing them all in one day. The suffering that must have happened would have been absolutely intense the weeping, the crying. And so it's understandable what she says, isn't it? Everything that she had lost, uh, her life along with, with Job's had been drastically, drastically changed. Job and his wife are in, the midst, uh, are in the midst of immense suffering. And if we admit it, if we really look at our own lives, we admit that most of us are more like Job's wife than we are like Job. We get deep down to our hearts and we want to turn from God. We don't want to trust God. It's easier to trust in our own circumstances, to trust in our wealth, to trust in the health of ourselves and of our families. We don't want to admit that God is sovereign over our suffering because that forces us 
to acknowledge our suffering. It forces us to an understanding that suffering is ultimately for our own good. Just as, as James tells us, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So if we acknowledge God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty even over our suffering, then we have to come to the same conclusion that James does. We have to come to the conclusion that our suffering is for our good. But this is not what Satan tells us. In fact, it's not what Satan tells God. Look back at verse 4. This is what Satan says. He says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. So what is Satan saying? He's saying that if your body isn't touched, then you're not really suffering. You're not really being tested. In other words, that immensity that you are feeling, Job in losing his means of safety, his security, his, his wealth, and seeing 10 of his children killed, Satan says that's not really suffering. Most of us don't experience that kind of intense suffering. So what I think what this looks like for us today is for us to often shake off things that we should embrace. Causes us to miss what God is doing. If we listen to that lie that what you're going through is, is no big deal, if we refuse to admit that we're hurting, we miss the sanctifying work of God. Oswald Chambers, if you've read my utmost for his highest, then you've read this one. Uh, Chambers writes this, uh, it's, it's his entry for January 1st. He says, before we choose to follow God's will, a crisis must develop in our lives. This happens because we tend to be unresponsive to God's gentler nudges. He brings us to the place where he asks us to be our utmost for him, and we begin to debate. He then providentially produces a crisis where we have to decide for or against. That moment becomes a great crossroads in our lives. If a crisis has come to you on any front, surrender your will to Jesus, absolutely and irrevocably. So what is suffering? Suffering is that chance we have to surrender our will to Jesus. Suffering is that crisis put in front of us where Christ is beckoning us to himself. But the enemy tells us otherwise. The enemy says, no, this is not that time. This is not real suffering. Things could always be worse, so you don't need to surrender your will. It would be better if you ignored God. That's the lie. And Job doesn't fall for it, and neither should we. So a second period of suffering commences. After his children, after his money, Job is struck with boils. His flesh is now in pain. So he sits and he scrapes himself with broken pottery. He was so deep into the pain of his loss and of his flesh that his friends didn't recognize him. 
Verse 12, back in our text. And when they saw him, Job's friends, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. Now this is a proper response to suffering. To weep and to bewail the pain of suffering is good and proper. Christ himself does this at the loss of Lazarus. He weeps. He cries even though he would go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. I think sometimes there's this idea in Christian circles that we need to be strong. We need to not acknowledge what we're going through. We need to just shake it off and move on. But sometimes the best thing we can do is sit. As Job's friends did, just sit and acknowledge suffering. Now there's another point of suffering I want to get from our text. In chapter one, God limits Satan. He limits him and says, don't touch him. All right, so Satan was allowed to affect Job's circumstances, but not Job himself. And now in chapter two, God says, only spare his life. So God is sovereign and he limits that suffering. God limits that suffering according to his plan and according to his will that's for our good. And so when we brush it off, when we shake off our suffering and we don't acknowledge it, we're refusing to receive a good gift from the Lord. Because that's what suffering is. Suffering is a gift that brings us closer to God. Now, to leave our story there with Job's friends, uh, sitting with him in silence is a somber place to leave the story. And in fact, that's where the story sits for 36 chapters. For the next 36 chapters uh, of the book of Job contain a conversation between Job and his friends. Job's friends assert that it's Job's sin that must be the reason for all this. It's the reason for all his pain and all his torment. But Job insists that it isn't. Now, we're not told about the state of Job's heart, only that through everything he did not sin with his lips. So his friends accuse him of sin, but Job asserts that if he could just speak to God, if God would just show up, then God would make known the reason for all of his suffering. Now the friends go back and forth and Job keeps wanting to ask God why. Why does all this happen? And then in chapter 38, God gives him an answer. Kind of. So if you want to turn with me to chapter 38, we're going to read the first uh, couple of verses there. So this is our third point this morning, God's answer. So in Job chapter 38, this is the Lord speaking. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. So what does God do? God points Job back to his sovereignty. He opens up the heavens and displays creation in front of Job. He asks Job a question rather than answering Job. He asks him if he understands how creation works, if he knows how big the universe is and how to control the sea. For four chapters, God questions Job about the immensity of creation and displays his glory and his majesty and his sovereignty. Job realizes what God is doing. He's realizing that God is so much greater than Job could ever imagine that he simply needs to be quiet. Job comes to this moment in chapter 42, and Job speaks these words. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job has come to a fuller understanding of God. This is almost like trying to explain an apple to someone. And I, I think Matthew might have used this analogy. I'm going to steal it because it fits here. You can explain uh, that the apple is, is red or green and it has a stem and it grows on a tree. You can explain all these things. And someone who's never tasted an apple will have no idea what you're talking about. But now Job has bitten off a piece of this apple. He acknowledges God's greatness and goodness. And without going through all his suffering, Job would not have had the same full understanding of God that he now does. Suffering brings us, as Chambers told us, suffering brings us to the point where we have to decide to submit to God or not. And here, Job has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and so he chooses to submit. And he sees God's goodness in a way that he never would have had he not gone through all that suffering. It's the same for us, isn't it? We see God's goodness and faithfulness through suffering in ways that we would have never imagined otherwise. But that's not the whole answer. Because even though the text in Job doesn't say that it's because of Job's sin that he suffers, we know that when sin entered the world, all of creation fell. And it fell into what the Westminster calls a state of sin and misery. Suffering is a result of sin, though maybe, I want to be careful here, but not necessarily a direct result of our own sin. So just as God's answer to Job was to show Job himself, God's answer for sin is himself. Christ came to earth to bear sin for us on the cross. The Father gave the Son to 
the world. What does Christ come and do? He comes and he suffered. He was beaten, mocked. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head, made to carry the instrument of his death, and then he was hung on a cross. He suffered. Christ suffered immensely. And if we were to end the story there, it may end on a point much like Job chapter 2 does. It's a somber place. But just as with Job, the story doesn't end there. Christ suffered and died, and then he rose again. Christ is the answer for sin, and we can rejoice. He took on the suffering that we were all deserving of because of our sin. He suffered and he felt the weight of our sin on the cross. So we do not have a God who simply commands us to endure suffering, and we may spend eternity with him. No, we have a God who came down to earth and suffered with us. He suffered for us that we might have life. And so, friends, please know this. Know that your suffering is temporary. This virus is a scary thing, but it will pass. We ought to be diligent and careful and prayerful, and we ought to wash our hands and stay six feet away from each other. But it will pass. His suffering is temporary. So if you believe in Christ, then we look forward to an everlasting life, free from pain, free from suffering. This pandemic and any other calamity that might befall us is a chance for us to submit to God. This is a chance to reject the lies that Satan is telling us and embrace the gospel. COVID-19 is not going to ruin our lives. This is a chance to submit to God more fully, to love him deeper, love your neighbor. And this is a chance to come to know Christ all the more. It's a chance to share with your neighbor the surpassing love and greatness of the Christ who suffered that we might spend eternal life with him for all those who believe. This is a chance to reconfirm to yourselves that same gospel truth. So friends, please do not fear, but trust in Christ because God is in control and he has a plan. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in the midst of our circumstances, it is hard to submit to you. It is difficult to take all the pain that we're feeling and turn that pain over to you and say thank you. Say thank you for Christ for suffering with us. Thank you for this pain that I'm feeling that draws me closer to you. So Father, teach us to be thankful. Teach us to count it to joy when we encounter trials. And teach us to look for how you're growing us. Teach us, uh, as Oswald Chambers said, teach us not to miss those gentle nudges. So Father, we thank you for this time that we have to, to gather differently. We thank you for Job. We thank you for the example of faithfulness that he is in staying faithful to a God that he trusts is good. Father, we thank you and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. I hear now God's good word for you, his 